What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Brenda Elsie, an associate professor of history at Hofstra on Long Island, Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history in women's, gender, and sexuality studies at Penn State University, and Lindsay Gibbs, a reporter at Think Progress in Washington, D.C. First things first, as always, thank you to our patrons whose support of this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down Possible. We are forever and always grateful. If you'd like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. You can pledge as little as $1 per month, but if you donate a little bit more, you can access exclusives like an extra Patreon-only segment or our monthly newsletter. On today's show, we are going to talk about how the NFL has 32 teams and almost no minority head coaches 15 years after the implementation of the Rooney Rule. Then, spurred on by the news this week that a tennis champion will retire this year after after a prolonged but ultimately unsuccessful effort to get back to top form, we will talk about the end of careers and why they are so difficult. Finally, I talk with Christina Genther, who last month prevailed in her discrimination lawsuit against a Minnesota women's tackle football team and the league that they're in, after she was told that because she's a transgender woman, she could not play on the team. And of course, we'll cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shoutouts to women who deserve shoutouts, and telling you what is good in our world. So let's, let's get started. All right, Amira, want to talk to us about the Rooney Rule? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, so the Monday after the last regular season NFL game is commonly known as Black Monday because that is the day where all the firings start to come down. This year, Black Monday was seemingly aptly named as people started to take notice of a black coach after a black coach being fired. So Hugh Jackson was dismissed by the Cleveland Browns. Um, earlier in the season. And then on Black Monday, the Jets let go of Todd Bowles, Denver Broncos let go of Vance Joseph, Steve Wilkes left the Cardinals, and Marvin Lewis ended his very long and contested tenure with the Cincinnati Bengals. That left just two black coaches in the league and three minority coaches all when you throw in Ron Rivera. So this movement of, of exodus of coaches from the league paired with the fact that over the last week, we've started to see hiring and replacement and it's not included. Um, you not, you've not added any black coaches. You've especially added coaches like Adam Gase is <laughs> like, like it's, just, it's baffling. But anywho, 
It has spurred yet another discussion about the functionality of the Rooney Rule. So for those who need a refresher, the Rooney Rule has been in implementation since uh, 2002. The first season that it really went into effect was the 2003 season. It's named for Dan Rooney, who was the chairman of the NFL's Workplace Diversity Committee, and basically um, requires each team to actually consider a minority coach or interview a minority candidate to replace a head coach vacancy. Now, there's many kind of critiques, longstanding critiques of the Rooney Rule. There's obviously mean-spirited, ignorant critiques of the Rooney Rule, which is similar to conversations you might hear around, say, affirmative action um, or workplace equity um, kind of notions. But in particular, I think this is a good moment to take assessment of if the Rooney rule does anything for me, that's not, I, I am one of the people who's like, "Mm, it's just for head coach vacancies. So you don't get a pipeline, you don't get insurance and it becomes a performance. Did you bring in somebody? Are you really considering them? No, you're just trying to fulfill the rule before you move on to your other candidate. And so I think it's a great time to stop and have a conversation about uh, if the Rooney Rule is working, if it's not, where do we go from here? And what are the state of minority head coaches or, you know, assistant coaches in the NFL? Lindsay? Uh, Yeah. So I did an article on Think Progress uh, last week. I actually, last month, ended up talking to one of the lawyers from the Fitz Pollard Association, which is kind of in charge of implementing and overseeing the Rooney Rule with the NFL. And there are a few important things to note. First of all, last, I believe, September, there were some changes allotted to the Rooney Rule, really the first significant changes in 15 years. So before we have our bigger conversation about what's working and what's not, I just kind of want to go over this a little bit. First of all, a lot of these changes were made People won't say that it was a direct response to this, but it was a, I will say it it was a direct response to (laughs) last year when the Oakland Raiders hired John Gruden and it was very clear they just hired John Gruden. Like there was no, they didn't even really pretend to have uh, legitimately interviewed any minority candidates. So this updated rule, a few things it did is it formalized the requirement that the person in charge of hiring has to be the one who interviews a minority candidate. So if it's the GM, if it's the president, whoever is really in charge has to be the one doing these the, the interviews with the minority candidate. They can't simply say, uh, now they can't just have their assistant do it so they can check a box, which sounds obvious, but apparently it was not to some. Second, it imposes stiffer obligations for teams to record data about the interviewing process so that it's easier to enforce the Rooney Rule and actually have consequences in theory if they're not implemented, though it's yet to be seen if there are going to be any actual consequences. And perhaps most importantly, the new rule established a career development advisory panel which in a, in essence is a list of viable minority head coaching candidates approved by the NFL and the Fritz Pollard Alliance. And the purpose of this list is to make sure that in, that team NFL owners aren't merely walking down the hall at their facility and interviewing the first minority they see so they comply with the Rooney Rule. And this was something that every cycle there would be a 
first year running back coach. Do you know what I mean? Who clearly was not ready to be a head coach, you know, but they would interview him because he was in the office and it would check the Rooney rule list. And you might say, well, it's good that this guy is getting a look. But if you're that far away, you know, from being a legitimate head coaching candidate, then what's happening is the ones who are farther up, the actual legitimate head coaching candidates or minorities aren't getting looked at. So this list is primarily, you know, viable candidates, which are primarily offensive and defensive coordinators, college head coaches and former head coaches. So if you're going to interview you know, so so that's – you, your interview needs to come from a person who is on this list if you're going to interview someone who's already employed by the club. But there are a few things this new Rooney Rule did not do, which they had wanted to implement. And for me, I thought the most interesting was the fact that it the Fritz Pollard Alliance had really fought for there to be now a, what is called the double minority rule, which means that at least two or more minority candidates have to be interviewed for each position. And the, I think the new language is something like it strongly urges clubs to interview my, multiple minority candidates, but it doesn't require them to do so. Why this is really interesting is in 2018, a Harvard Business Review paper looked at the candidates interviewed for 35 head coaching positions that were open in the NFL between 2013 and 2017. And over that time period, 29 white men were hired compared to only six black men. The study found that increasing the number of black candidates interviewed drastically improved the candidates, the chances of a black candidate being hired. So in 22 instances, owners only interviewed one black coach and only one of those owners hired a black coach. However, in 12 instances, two or more black coaches were interviewed for the head coaching position and four of those owners, 33%, ended up hiring a black coach. So the quote from the Harvard Business Review was, there's little doubt that the Rooney Rule brought change to the NFL. However, concerns that progress has been too slow can be explained by the fact that interviewing one African-American coach is simply not enough. Now, and then, of course, there's the actual pipeline problem, which Amira alluded to, which I think is the biggest problem in this. My take with the Rooney Rule has always been it's a it's a good step. It's an important step. Other places, other businesses have implemented it successfully. But you got to do a lot more than just that. It can't it can't work in a vacuum. One rule is not going to solve the systemic problem. Yeah. And I think that's such an important part of this. The pipeline is everything, right? When we talk about diversifying any field, one of the hugest issues is always going to be the pipeline. You know, I think there are there's so much to say about this. I The Undefeated has a piece about the Rooney Rule. And one of the things that they point out is that co- our teams that are struggling, teams that are bad, like to hire black head coaches, right? So you're bringing these coaches in when they're already bad, asking them to fix it. It's They struggle to do that. And, and then they, they get fired. And leash. Yeah, which we see the, you know, this is something very famous in business with bringing women CEOs. They were famously hired when companies are failing and then the women struggle to turn around the failing company and then they get fired and everyone thinks women are bad CEOs. So you're bringing black head coaches into situations that are more difficult to succeed. And then people are like, well, they're bad, <laughs> right? And and that skews everything. And the other thing that people have been talking about a lot, this coaching cycle is the offensive coordinator versus defensive coordinator. Again, the undefeated had a lot of information about this. So white hires are twice as likely to be offensive coordinators, 35% compared to 19%, while minority hires are almost twice as likely to be defensive coordinators, 47% compared with 24%. And the NFL is currently in a moment where they 
are liking offensive coordinators as head coaches. There's no real other way to explain Cliff Kingsbury <laughs> getting hired. <laughs> I mean, he's very pretty, so maybe that. Um, but otherwise, there's just no way to make sense of some of the hires. But it also just so happens <laughs> that they tend to be white men, right? And so you get this way that the the industry shifts just so happens in ways that favor white people. And it made me think, and maybe this is too much of a leap, but I read a book a couple years ago about Texas high school football. And when they desegregated, they made all these excuses because black high schools in Texas were much better at football. And, And so there was so much work that had to be done to explain why these schools were not going to hire black head coaches. And they had to do all this work of saying that, of course, you know exactly where I'm going with this, if you know anything about this, that it was all the players, that they're just incredibly athletic, that the coaches weren't the reason that the teams were good, that it's the white head coaches that were smart enough to lead their less athletically inclined players uh, to championships. But they did have to do a ton of work to make sense of this. And they didn't hire black head coaches, even though they were clearly very, very good at it. And so it just makes me think about the way that everything will, there's always an excuse for it, right? And it feels right now with this offensive coordinator, you know, like, maybe that's not an on purpose in the front of the brain kind of move, but it just so happens that it really does favor. It does really favor whitehead coaches. Okay. So Amira, I would like to, like, what do you think we need to go from here? Yeah. And well, what we know just along the lines that you were saying about hiring practices in general is very similar to if you can look at female politicians and understand how coded words like unlikable or aggressive are used disproportionately for behaviors that would be seen in a different way if they manifested in a man and a man is very similar to how hiring practice hiring practices favor or, you know, don't favor minoritized head coaches in in say the sporting league exactly around what Jess was saying, which is not just a kind of looking for excuses, but they actually get embedded in thought practices. And so the idea that former players or people students of the game, the idea that if you're good and you excel as a player, it's because you're just gifted athletically, but it's not because you have football IQ. It's not because you're on the field smart. These are the same kind of foundational arguments that were used formally to exclude, you know, black people from playing quarterback, right, or pitching any kind of mental position. And when I say formally, it's because sometimes what happens is these thought patterns get embedded into the institutions, into the systems. And so it becomes harder to disentangle. And so I think that's one of the things that's hard about this is because the Pollard Association, you know, you can look at all of these firings and they found them all to be justified, right? And so you can definitely, I'm not going to sit here, (laughs) I will not sit here and defend Hugh Jackson. Like it's not going to happen. But I think that what what does happen then is you look at a field of candidates and not only are you saying, okay, we're looking for offensive coordinators because we want to, you know, have splashy offenses, but the idea that where the knowledge is, who has it, what their knowledge pertains to, um, is still very much informing practices and ideas about discipline or you know, control of the team. These are like small, the team culture will have the players respect, right? These are small coded words that the effect they have though is 
um, leading to quite discriminatory hiring practices. So where do we go from here? Well, um, I definitely think right now they informally can apply the Rooney rule to the coordinator position. I think that absolutely needs to become an on-paper rule. I think it needs to focus on, you know, the pipeline, as you both said. And I think that, you know, one of the biggest areas, I think we also need to think and open up coaching as a viable field from a younger age. And not just, you know, we have some some kids playing college ball who, when they're told to think past their future, it's always like media, always be in front of the camera. And it's like, well, what would it look like if we're also like, hey, you know what? You really like to coach. This is what that pathway looks like for you. And so you can start thinking about all the other possibilities open to you, not not dissimilar to when we talk about opening up employment pathways to little girls who who want to be coaches or want to be referees. Like we have to show that there's more possible. So it's a it's a kind of all hands on deck thing for me. Yeah, that all makes a ton of sense, uh, Lindsay. Yeah, it's about being purposeful about it, right? It's about being cognizant of it and pushing for it. One good story if there is within all this, or I think a path forward is uh, the way Bruce Arians has kind of mentored and sought out Byron Leftwich, who is going to be now the offensive coordinator for him and the play caller for him at Tampa Bay, because Bruce Arians is now going to be the head coach at Tampa Bay. Byron Leftwich is black and he was a kind of a backup quarterback, kind of a journeyman backup quarterback for 10 years. Of course, there's a few things to note. First of all, we're just now getting to the point where there are veteran journeyman backup black quarterbacks, right? Like there have been so few black quarterbacks yeah, in this system true. that, you know, this this path, which I mean, the backup quarterback to coaching ranks thing is not an unusual path, but that hasn't been open for black uh, players because there haven't been that many black quarterbacks specifically. Definitely not veteran backup quarterbacks. But Byron Leftwich, when he left uh, the Arizona Cardinals, when he was a player there, or sorry, when he quit his NFL team, I don't have the exact team he was on in his NFL career in front of me. But Bruce Arians had worked with him and had noticed when he was a backup quarterback how much talent he had, how great he did helping in the film rooms, helping coaching. And Bruce Arians reached out to him and said, I want you to come take a coaching fellowship on my staff. I think you're really talented. And Byron at first turned him down because he hadn't seen this as a viable path for him. Bruce Arians then convinced, you know, kept kind of kept plugging away. And now Byron Leftwich is one of the few black offensive coordinators in the league. And next year, he's going to be a play caller. He's going to be calling the offensive plays. So, you know, that's the, we need these coaches to start looking at coaches on all levels to start looking for that talent in all NFL players. And if they look at all NFL players, hopefully they're bound to see it in the black NFL players because their black NFL players are 70% of the NFL. And so that's a way forward. I think if they can increase the statistics show that a double Rooney rule is effective and you have to increase it to at least offensive and defensive coordinator positions. And just to note, like we've had all these openings. It seems there are two coaching vacancies that haven't been filled yet out of, I believe the seven or eight that were started at the beginning of the year. And one, it seems that only one will be filled by a minority. That's not official yet because the New England Patriots are still playing. So you can't hire, but the Miami Dolphins are interested in Brian Flores, who is Honduran and black. So, you know, he's kind of, he'll be, I believe, the second Hispanic coach um, 
in addition to Ron Rivera, who is a Puerto Rican, the Panthers head coach, and now just the third black coach in the NFL, if that does become official. Other than that, all the head coaches have been white. Lindsay, there was sad but not wholly unexpected news in the tennis world this week. Please tell us about it. Yes, I'm so sad. So <laughs> I am sad this too. week, we all, <laughs> and honestly, in this situation, I do feel comfortable speaking for the entire universe, <laughs> received some devastating news when Andy Murray, Sir Andy Murray, announced through tears that he is going to be retiring from tennis this year. He is simply in too much pain due to hip injury to keep going. Murray's hope is that he can make it to Wimbledon and retire there, but he doesn't know if he can make it. And there's a definite possibility that the Australian Open will be his final tournament, even the even a possibility that by the time you hear this, he will have played his last pro tennis match. Murray is best known for winning three Grand Slam titles, Wimbledon in 2013 and 2016, the U.S. Open in 2012, and two Olympic gold medals. He was a British number one, of course, meant a lot to the Brits. But he was beloved really in these parts for his feminism and his thoughtfulness. He was and still is an avid advocate for women's tennis. He would often remind announcers uh, and journalists that women's tennis exists <laughs> when they would forget to include women in records or narratives. And he really made history a few years ago when he hired Amelie Moresmo to be his coach. So look, it's for a lot of reasons, it's really heartbreaking to see his career in this way in so much emotional and physical agony. Of course, though, the truth is that very few athletes get to retire like a Pete Sampras or a John Elway winning a championship on their way out the doors on their own terms. More often than not, they're forced to call it quits because either in a lot of cases for a lot of women, it's not financially viable to keep going. Perhaps they're scared for their health, perhaps their brain health in the case of concussions. Sometimes it's a health issue. I'm thinking Chris Bosch and his blood clots. Sometimes for women, it's pregnancy. Um, I know we're going to talk about that. So I- I'm very curious for you guys to hear, you know, what retirements kind of stick out to you. How do you as fans deal with it when players are calling quits? All the kind of mixed emotions we feel. But I also want to leave this quote from Swin Cash, who got to leave pretty much on her own terms uh, in her WNBA career. And she wrote, but it was still really tough. And she wrote for the Players' Tribune, quote, most people don't get to wake up every day and do something they're passionate about. You always feel you can give more, but at some point you have to do what's right for yourself. Maybe every athlete goes through that when they retire. It's hard to open up your hands and let go of what you know. You hold on because it's so much a part of your routine and your life. I've always been training for something. What happens when that's gone? Brenda, any retirements that you want to talk to us about? I think one of the most emotional for me was Barry Sanders' retirement in 1999. Being from the Detroit area, Barry Sanders was really important as a role model. And the Detroit Lions are terrible. They're so terrible. He was never... He was never going to go to the Super Bowl. He never thought he was going to go to the Super Bowl. He was like most talented ever person to just know from the beginning, this isn't going to happen for me. And I just remember that the way that we found out was he actually sent a letter to Wichita, his hometown newspaper. And it's amazing. And he said, you know, I have kids and I have my health, and I'm done here. And he was close to Peyton's rushing record, right? It was a big deal. Um, he rushed for, what, 15,000-something yards. And um, he was a devout Christian, which I'm not, but 
wow, like principals and class. And it was just lovely. And guess what happened? The lion sued him for some of his remaining bonus. <laughs> oh, my cool. gosh. God. So, you're right. So, it's like this incredibly like classy, emotional. He's like, I'm staying in Detroit with my four sons, member of the community, sterling representative, and the Detroit Lions and all their incredible shittiness after they just like, you know, gouged Detroit as part of the Ford company, you know, sued him. So for one sixth of the bonus. Yeah. So I remember that. I remember that just being like, wow, you know, they really don't care about athletes at all. And just being so impressed with Barry Sanders. And as far as I know, I mean, I read, sadly, I read his biography, his autobiography biography. And I think he's been like really happy, not concussed and four sons. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. And I wish I do wish more women had the opportunity to go out like that. Yeah, that's such an important point about they don't the thing about these sports teams and orgs is like when you're done, they like you're you're not useful anymore, right? Amira. Yeah, the disposability of it all really it makes me very sad. And I think, you know, it's very rare to like you said, go out on your own terms and to get a send off and to have it be like a very kind of perfect send off. A lot of a lot of times, especially like say in the NFL, a player might try to go and get a job on a different team. And so I think I'm thinking particularly here around Vince Wilfork, who was my favorite player for so much of my life. And then he didn't really have enough to keep playing in New England. So he went down to Houston and played with them for two seasons. And then he retired. And so and he retired in an epic way. If anybody remembers, he retired by filming a ribs commercial, <laughs> barbecuing ribs in his overalls. And uh, it's I'll, I'll link it to the show. It's epic. And so he announced his retirement barbecuing ribs, which he's kind of known for dancing and barbecuing ribs. So I really appreciated that. And it was just kind of, and then he would come and sign a one day contract to retire as a Patriot. Um, so he kind of came back to do that. And and that was a lot. But I think the things that really get me about end of careers are this kind of agony of your body quitting perhaps before your mind does. There was a tweet I saw to D. Wade this week that was like, why is D. Wade quitting or giving up whatever. And he responded, ask his body. And, you know, I kind of eased out of sports because I had a really bad appendectomy that took me out of my last year of soccer right before college. And then I got pregnant with Samari and I didn't reflect on it in the moment because it felt like, oh, new chapter and life changes and stuff like that. But then looking back, I was like, oh, damn. So like, I'm just like not playing formalized, institutionalized athletics anymore, which I've done my entire life. But I think about this a lot for like, I think of my best friend who um, was a standout track star all through high school, who went to Brown and ran track was you know, all Ivy League was the Ivy League freshman, won all the awards, and then had a horrific hamstring injury. And it took her out for the middle of her collegiate career. And she came back her senior year with like a reconstructed hamstring and tried to battle through it. And I just remember watching her last meet and she just couldn't get the kick she was used to. And it was heartbreaking. And I remember all of us crying and just and feeling like you can't, what can you do? You can't get that kick that you used to. You can't 
run in the way that you're used to be running, even though in your head, that's what you have. That's what you can do. And I think that that's, that is really heartbreaking. And I've said this before on here and I've said this to you guys over and over again, but you know, I felt the same way when Sid LaRue was, you know, announcing the baby. I immediately remember that video of her talking about what it feels like to do the same, you know, be the same career as your husband. And then every time you have a baby, you're sidelined and he can keep on playing. And then knowing that this particular baby feels like the end of her career. And so how do you manage being really happy about the direction your life is going in, perhaps, but also very sad for what it means is coming to an end? Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, like the flip side of this is so interesting, too, because there was a really great the last episode of the 3430 podcast season that recently ended. Clinton Yates uh, narrated it and it was about a baseball player named Ricky Henderson. And I I admittedly didn't, I I don't watch baseball. I don't know a ton about (laughs) baseball, but he's very, very famous for stealing bases. And he played for a really, really long time. And what's so interesting about his story is that everyone tried to get him to stop. Like they kept trying to say that he shouldn't be playing anymore because he's too old. And so he actually went down, you know, into like AAA baseball uh, to try to play to to get back to the majors. He thought he was still good enough, uh, but there was all this discussion around him and people kept being like, why are you playing? And he's like, cause I love to play baseball. <laughs> and it's so interesting hearing it and thinking about the fact that, you know, we chase people out, people get forced out, uh, just how, how messy the end of careers are. And, and you hear so often about athletes who really struggle with that transition. Uh, Abby Wambach has been, famously very open about this. Michael Phelps has been very famous about um, how, and his would come in cycles, like he would have the very high of the Olympics and then crash afterwards, then have to sort of build himself back up again. You know, and then on the flip side of all of this, I will say here in Austin, it's it's been fun. This NFL postseason, I've caught a few games and they keep showing this commercial for a bakery. Oh, yes! <laughs> And it's Brian, it's Michael Griffin and Brian Arakpo. And Brian Arakpo just retired. And these two men own a bakery. It's only a few miles from where I live. And it is on my 2019 to-do list is to go to their bakery. And I do think it's it's interesting because they really have a path forward. And you know, I hope that really does help them in the transition. You know, Michael Griffin left a while ago. Brian Rackpo just retired. But one of the things that I was reading about and prepping for this, and this was in an article for The Atlantic last year in, in February about athletes retiring, Olympic athletes, but like that a lot of these people don't have, you know, job experience. Like the things that you like, what do you put on your resume? <laughs> How do you assess what skills you have that will translate outside of athletics, even though of course you do have them, but that that can be such a struggle. And but I will definitely report back here to all of you once I have gone and had cupcakes and I'm like really crossing my fingers that one of them is there because apparently like I think it's Arakpo who is the decorator and Michael Griffin is the baker and what is not to love about that story so Brenda yeah I can't help but think about Bryce Love have you been following this story has anybody been following this story I have not the he is a player for Stanford and on the last play of the last regular season game he tore his ACL and he now it's like iffy if he'll get drafted into the NFL. 
And so it might be the end of his football career. So I just want to throw that out there, that there's a whole bunch of college players whose careers might end that way, and they're never getting paid. So uh, (laughs) just throwing out there that it's really important to think about that labor and the fact that they really can, their careers can end at 21. And, you know, it's, and they don't come, come out of it with a nest egg, so to speak. They come out of that with a lot of medical bills. And I hope Stanford is paying a lot of attention to that because I hope it's not the end of his career. Of course, I hope not. But I think we do need to keep in mind that a lot of, and Amira was mentioning college athletes, that their careers can end very early and they are injury prone at many levels. So. Yeah, great point. <laughs> Lindsay? I just feel like every, I want to give everyone a look, quick look behind the scenes. We thought of this topic as slightly a lighter fare for us today. <laughs> and I, I think that this essentially means pull back we, the curtain. We, we don't do light very well. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, my interview with Christina Ginther, a trans woman who called out discrimination in women's tackle football. I'm excited today to be joined by Christina Ginther. It's possible that you've read about Christina sometime in the last month because in December, she prevailed in her discrimination suit against a Minnesota women's tackle football team and league, the Minnesota Vixen in the Independent Women's Football League. Because Christina is a transgender woman, she was told by the Vixen owner that she could not play for the team. Before we get to what happened with the Vixens, Christina, give us a little intro to you as a football player. Well, sure. I made my transition later in life at age 42. And if you are familiar with the process of of gender transition, it's not easy. You know, I had lost a lot. Uh, The most difficult part was losing my marriage and a lot of circles Mm -hmm. of friends, a lot of in-laws that I was close to. So I'd been through this radical upheaval in my life. Going into my uh, second year of transition, or I was about 18 months in, I'm like, I now want to rebuild my social structure. Where do I belong? Where do I fit? And I'm like, well, I'm athletic, and I've always wanted to participate in a team sport. In the Twin Cities in Minnesota here, we have a publication called Lavender Magazine, which is an LGBTQ publication. And they had an Mm -hmm. issue that held up the Vixen as this model of LGBTQ inclusivity. Weeks later was the Twin Cities Pride Festival. There was a booth hosted by the Minnesota Vixen, and they were getting the word out about them. Oh. Yeah, and they were getting the word hmm. out about their team. And I'm like, wow, this seemed awesome. I went to an open practice to see, all right, is this going to be a fit? How did it go? It was awesome. <laughs> How were you? It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the question in my mind was, is this going to be trans friendly? Of course. I wanted to see, have there been other trans women that have played? Is this anything unusual? Well, sure enough, April of that year, the Huffington Post had an article about a woman named Sabrina Lachlan. Sabrina was the first transgender woman to play women's football back in 2005. And also trans woman to play in the IWFL. It also, the article said she helped write trans inclusive policies to pave the way for future trans women to come. So awesome. Trans friendly. The IWFL is a pioneer in this. And this was over 10 years ago. Awesome. 
So I show up to the open practice and it was awesome. And a lot of the players were off to the side cheering me on as I was doing catching drills. I always wanted to be a wide receiver and I was having an enormous amount of fun and people were so welcoming. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, this is it. This is where I want to be. They were having a football clinic two weeks later and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. It was such a positive experience. There were three tryouts that month. This was in October. I attended the first. I had injured my left quad and re-injured it during the football clinic. And then I'm like, well, let me rehab my quad. And I even told the coach this. I wrote to him and I'm just like, I I wasn't able to perform up to my best. Could you give me my numbers? I just want to see how they're doing. I'm going to rehab for the next four weeks and I'll go to the third tryout at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. He did. And I had no indication that anything was wrong at this point. Little did I know, and this came up in in court documents, that one of the coaches had suspected at this point at the tryout that I was transgender. And they had initiated a witch hunt among the coaches to look at my social media and see if I indeed was transgender. And at this time, I was shouting it all over the place. Hey, everyone, I'm a proud transgender woman and so proud to be part of the trans community. And like, I'm documenting my transition. I I was very open about being trans and I didn't think that that would be an issue, right? So I work with an orthopedist for four weeks to rehab my quad. I'm stronger than I was when I did the first tryout. I do great in the third set of tryouts. So two weeks later, the team owner called me and said, well, we looked at your social media, your numbers were good, but we found out that you're transgender and you must be born female to play in the league. And there's also a safety concern. And I was like, but I I read an an article that trans women have played before in the league. And the the Mm -hmm. owner, Laura Brown said, well, you know, there's a lot of confusion about that. So I contacted the league and they told me that you must be born female in order to play. I mean, I was just in shock because like everything I read said, this should not be an issue. Suddenly I realized my being trans is a liability that if people don't know that I'm trans at first and then suddenly find out that I am later, that trans label others me, I'm no longer like everyone else. My trans status is something to be ashamed of. My trans status makes me a freak. It makes me not desirable. It makes me not equal to others. That was the message that was communicated to me. What, what did you say? You know, I said, well, what gave me away I mean, how did you know? And which, I mean, I don't even, I didn't know what else to say. And they're like, oh, well, you know, before we offer contracts to players, we check their social media standard policy to make sure that, you know, they're, they're upstanding people. They're not making offensive posts. And well, we found out that way. In trial, though, that's not what the documents showed that that's not what had happened. And this is what Laura Brown said in her deposition. One of the coaches suspected I was trans. They began this hunt to see, all right, go find out if she is. Their documents showed that. So they like, they tar, it was a targeted. Yes. yes. And the coaches were, were, were all looking, even Laura Brown's husband was looking at my social media and Sure enough, they, they, there's a text exchange between the head coach, Brandon Polinka, and Laura Brown. Here, I actually have the document right in front of me. It says, Ginther, that's Brandon Polinka, text to Laura Brown, the owner of the Vixen. Laura says, yes, has a YouTube channel. That's Coach Polinka. It's called Engender. It's about her transitioning. So I don't think we need to ask about it. Here's Laura's reaction. 
LOL, laugh out loud. James, who's her husband, said he saw her documenting about it on Facebook too. Coach Palenka says LOL in response. So, I mean, even as more of these documents and you saw and learning how... Like it's, like it's a joke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that they're happy that they found out that I'm trans so that they can don't have to bring me on the team. Yeah. So there's... they were. I mean, the Vixen owner, Laura Brown, was saying that the women, the Independent Women's Football League had a policy and that she was just following it. Is That's that correct? correct? She said, this is their policy and you have to be born female. And so did the IWFL at some point change that? Or was that Huffington Post article incorrect? So I contacted Sabrina Lachlan, the person who was featured in that Huffington Post article and said, I read your article. Congratulations on being the first woman. But here's what happened. She wrote back to me right away and Mm. said, this is BS. This this can't be true. Someone is lying. She left several messages for the IWFL, which the IWFL never responded. Wow. So you won your lawsuit in the end. Both the team and the league were found to have legally discriminated against you by not allowing you to play. Can you talk a little bit about how the court ruled on accountability? In our lawsuit, we named Laura Brown, the LLC that owns the Vixen, and of course, the Minnesota Vixen, plus the IWFL. What the court ruled is that Laura Brown was not acting alone. It was a team effort. Like I said, the coaches, even her husband, was involved in trying to find out, am I trans? Using that as an ex- as the reason for not including me. So what the jury found in their verdict is that, yes, the Minnesota Vixen as a team are responsible. Not only are they responsible, but they discriminated with deliberate disregard to the Human Rights Act, meaning it was, it was intentional. Hmm. Also, because they were acting on behalf of the IWFL, then the IWFL is also accountable. Now, Jessica, the main purpose of of this Mm -hmm. lawsuit is trans people get told all the time, no, you're not wanted because you're transgender, or they're they're, they're given a hard time. They're not included. They're not accepted. And at the same time, a lot of trans people feel they don't have a voice, that you just have to take it and not say anything. Also, people feel almost like they're doing society a favor by keeping trans people out. The main mm-hmm. purpose of this re- of, of the lawsuit, in addition to holding those accountable who discriminated, is to show that everyone has a responsibility to ensure equality and fairness for everyone, including trans individuals. What would you like people to understand about trans athletes that maybe they don't, especially especially female trans sure, athletes. Sure. I know that the, there's a perception out there. A lot of people don't understand trans people, trans individuals. Why would you change your right. gender for most people that are comfortable with the way they were born? But the thing is, we don't do this because it's a choice, because it's we think, hey, you know what? I think it'll be cool to change my gender today. Mm-hmm. It's a very difficult process that most people don't do until it gets to be a life and death decision. So once transition begins, there's an enormous sense of freedom. The problem is social acceptance. Hmm. A lot of trans Mm -hmm. people don't get that, and it causes a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. There's a woman who's a visible part of of the local community here who recently committed suicide, and that happens all the time because of that lack of social acceptance. What trans athletes are trying to do, we're we're simply trying to fit in. We're trying to 
participate in an activity. And I believe athletics have tremendous positive impact on someone's psyche, on their mental well-being, on their emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. So that's all mm-hmm. trans athletes we're trying to do is belong, to be with the gender that we identify with, that we're comfortable with. So I joined the, the Minnesota Machine in 2017, and they were in a different league with trans eligibility policies that are similar to the NCAA's policies. And they welcomed me with open arms. And what league is that? That's the Women's Football Alliance. So you've been playing with the WFA for two years? That's correct. You know, let me just say something about this. And, And there are so many amazing women in women's tackle football. There's so many people of character, uh, who are tough um, emotionally and mentally, in addition to physically, who are just incredible people. I've, it has been an honor mm-hmm. for me to be able to play next to these women. And regarding the, being trans, my teammates universally said, I, you know, I don't think of you as a trans player. I think of you as a player. I don't think of you as any different. You're just one of our teammates standing shoulder to shoulder on the field. That's very lovely. I'm really glad to hear that you have a team and, and teammates like that now. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for being on Burn It All Down and for telling us your story. And thank you so much, Jessica, for having me on Burn It All Down. It's such a, an amazing podcast. You're doing such great work bringing visibility to women's athletics and of course, to trans inclusion in athletics. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and we set them aflame. Lindsay, what are you burning this week? Well, you will all be shocked to know. I'm going to try to be quick about this. Everyone to shock everyone, but I'm going to actually throw some Michigan State things on the burn pile. But I have a surprise addition to this week's burn pile, which is going to be Michigan State's neighbors over the University of Michigan. Okay, so let's start with Michigan State. First of all, this week, interim president John Engler told the Detroit News that there would be no more NASA investigations at Michigan State because officials are, quote, trying to go back to work. He also told the Detroit News that many NASA survivors are, quote, enjoying the spotlight. Also on Friday, there was a, the first Board of Trustees meeting of 2019 at Michigan State. There were no motions to fire John Engler at this board meeting, which includes new board members who we were very excited about. And Diane Bynum, a trustee who has not been very supportive of survivors and does not have the support of survivors, was voted chairman of the board. And one of the votes in her favor was by Brianna Scott, a new trustee who had run on a campaign of change and of supporting survivors. So then over at the University of Michigan, guess who is the new assistant coach of their gymnastics team? That would be Rhonda Fain, a former senior vice president of USA Gymnastics who left amid the fallout of the Larry Nasser scandal. While she did report Nasser's abuse to USA Gymnastics president Steve Penny in 2015, she did not go to law enforcement, nor did she speak up when Nasser's firing was announced as a retirement, nor when he remained at Michigan State for over a year where he was abusing patients. Oh, and the reason why University of Michigan needed some coaching help, that they had a vacancy for, for Rhonda Fain? Well, because in November, a University of Michigan assistant gymnastics coach, Steve Viterra, was fired after he was caught having sex in the parking lot with one of his female gymnasts. So I would just like to throw all of this on the burn pile. <laughs> oh. oh, burn. Oh, how is it getting worse? Burn. 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 No, but it, it's spreading. Burn. It's spreading. 
All the time. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Jess's disbelief, like, at each level of the burn is, like, the things that. I couldn't pick one. I had to just throw it all in there. Okay. It's like I pay attention to the edges of these things. And then when Lindsay gives us the details, I'm just like. And she's just like, oh, oh, no. No. It's so bad. Okay, Brenda, what is on your burn pile? I went to Michigan State, so I'm like crying over here in a corner. God, what's on my burn pile? I'm going to be really quick because we're going to do a Patreon on it for this month. I want to burn Juventus. Go ahead. uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a really terrible soccer team. And why is it terrible? Well, it's probably the most corrupt and uh, devious gambling racket to ever exist. And now they will do anything to protect their billion-dollar baby, Cristiano Ronaldo. And like I said, we'll go into more detail on the Patreon. But I want to burn Juventus's misogyny, their immediate response to any news about Cristiano Ronaldo's ongoing rape um, case that he raped Catherine Mayorga and her rape case, I should say, and the ongoing new claims of certain women. We'll talk about it. But what matters to me here is that Juventus will go to any lengths to immediately post the most offensive and misogynistic social media statements, conferences that preemptively forgive him of everything and exonerate him completely. And I want to burn that because it's part of the whole machine to protect abuses of power uh, that are directed against women. So I want to burn Juventus there. I'll just give you one example. Okay, I can't help it. They posted immediately after the allegations came out by a, a sort of brief B celebrity from England they posted a whole anniversary, their six-month anniversary with Cristiano Ronaldo. Like a whole series of like- How about that timing? Is, <laughs> yeah, no, there's no mistake. It's immediate. It's uh, two hours after these claims came out a few days ago. They said, which of these images best captures our six-month anniversary with Cristiano Ronaldo? Ew. Like what even is, who does that? <laughs> the, you so know, lame. middle schoolers. Middle you have a schoolers, six month exactly. anniversary. What I mean, it's so phony. Anyway, so I'm gonna burn Juventus. That's my angle right now. Burn, burn, burn. All right, Amira, what do you want to torch? Um, I just <laughs> <laughs> so the, yes, the Chiefs and the Colts played um football this weekend. Yes. Was it yesterday? That feels like it feels like two weeks ago. Jeez. So. Part during the game, uh, the NBC cameras panned over to a Chiefs fan sitting in the stands in full no uh, indigenous no. <laughs> I'm just rejecting this. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, in full indigenous headdress, you know the Chiefs play at Arrowhead Stadium. They do their version of the tomahawk chop, familiar to those who watch Florida State football. They also reappropriate Native American anthem into a game time war chant. So the thing that particularly irritates me is that two years ago, there was a whole brouhaha because a famous restaurant in town in Kansas City 
uh, put up a sign that read, Casey Chiefs will scalp the Redskins, feed them whiskey, send to reservation. This was when the Chiefs and the Washington football team were playing in like the two. It was just terrible all around. No marketing was good for it ever. And the sign was taken down, but it spread through social media. And what prompted what happened in the fallout of this was that the Kansas City Chiefs decided that they wanted to partner with um, the American Indian Center of the Great Plains and other groups to band together and look for, quote unquote, a common ground. So, you know, the Chiefs, it's a low bar, but the Chiefs did (laughs) what's very rare is they, you know, brought in these groups and they asked what was particularly offensive. And they basically were like, yeah, the headdresses, you should ban them from the studio, you should ban them from the stadium, et cetera, et cetera. You know, here's the thing we found offensive. And the Chiefs were like, yeah, so we're not going to ban them, but we will ask the broadcast partners not to show fans wearing regalia, but we won't ban them from the games. Likewise, there's nothing we can do about the war chant or the tomahawk chop because those are things that get the stadium pumping. But what we will do is do an educational program where we bring in the drum and you can, during Native American Heritage Month in November and you can talk about, you know, what happens. And the guy was like, yeah, no, we're used to this. You bring us out, you play the music, we dance, everybody claps, we go back home. There's no education. There's no understanding. It's a mess. And so this was two years ago. And out of this, the, the, you know, the chiefs patted themselves on the back and they said, look, we have a new Native American awareness program. We've talked to people. We're not offensive anymore, but we can't let go of certain symbols in the stadium because it's quote meant to symbolize the crowd coming together and supporting a team we all celebrate. And so we fast forward to today, two years after they've patted themselves on the back and celebrated this. And you see broadcast partners certainly singling out and zooming in on a fan wearing headgear. You don't see education. And as the Chiefs continue to be good, which by the looks of their quarterback will go on for a long time, my hope is that we'll have these same conversations that we have clustered around, say, Chief Wahoo or the Washington football team, because they cannot articulate how tiresome and exhausting and frustrating it is to be dealing with this kind of symbol, this mockery on stolen land. Like you're like, it's literally, we shouldn't forget it. And we talk about it here. We've we've done a few episodes on indigeneity, but because they're so baked into our sporting culture, it's just like, you forget that the chiefs are playing at Arrowhead stadium with tomahawk chops and headgear until you see them on prime time. And then it's just like, we're doing this for real? Yes. The answer is yes. We're still doing this and nobody cares. And it's, I just want to burn it. Burn. Burn. Last week in Arizona, some freshman boys in high school wanted to simply play in a school-sanctioned basketball game. But it wasn't that simple because they had a racist referee. According to the Arizona Daily Star, a basketball official just minutes before tip-off asked the head coach of the Pueblo High School if his players had their green cards. Pueblo High is on, this is according to the Arizona Daily, Pueblo High is on South 12th Avenue in a largely Hispanic part of Tucson. 89% of the students who attend the school are Latino. The ref said they were, that he was just attempting humor, but guess what? Racism isn't funny. There's an image of the ref in a deadspin post, and let me just say, since this is audio, 
He looks exactly like you think he would. Geography matters here. Tucson is not far from the U.S. border. And we are in a particular moment where racist rhetoric is coming from the very top of federal official in this country, and that rhetoric is everywhere. Asylum seekers are being held at the border in camps. Families are being separated. People are being forced to stay on the Mexican side of the border in squalor, all while bullshit ideas about boogeyman caravans are being trotted out by the White House and the U.S. government is shut down. Because the man-child who is president wants to waste money on a border wall, there's no humor to be found in jokes about green cards directed at 14-year-old Latino boys. Only racists think that this is funny. The good part of this is the man was swiftly fired. Still, burn the fact that anyone anywhere feels like they can get away with this kind of, quote, joke, and for the fact that plenty of people, unlike this ref, do actually get away with it. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First, we want to remember Bernice Sadler, the godmother of Title IX, the 1972 legislation that barred the federal government from giving money to educational institutions who discriminate on the basis of sex. Sadler died last weekend at the age of 90. She was central to the development, passage, and implementation of the law. Thank you, Dr. Sadler. And now for this week's Honorable Mentions. All the athletes who competed in the 2019 International Ice Hockey Federation Under-18 Women's World Championship. Cheers especially to Canada and Shireen, uh, who beat the USA to win gold in the tournament. Sabrina Anescu, the University of Oregon basketball star, recorded the 15th triple-double of her career on January 6th against Washington State. Nigeria women's national team, the Super Falcons, were not only the African champs this year, but also declared the African women's team of the year by the Confederation of African Football. Congrats, ladies. We can't wait to watch you soar at the Women's World Cup. Notre Dame, the number one team in women's college basketball, held off number two, Louisville, last week with burn-it-all-down favorite Arika Ugambwale scoring 30 points. Desiree Ellis, the Banyana Banyana coach, was chosen as African Women's Coach of the Year for 2018. Milagros Martinez Dominguez. The Spanish coach is the first woman to coach a soccer team in the Japanese men's league for Suzuka Unlimited. Brenda Fries, the Maryland women's head basketball coach, notched her 500th win this week. Sarah Thomas is now the first woman to officiate an NFL playoff game. Annie Zadie for being appointed as head coach to Solihull Moors Football Club. Congratulations, Annie. Annie is the first hijab-wearing woman in the UK to achieve this level of coaching certification. Erica Ayala, a frequent guest on this program, Sherry Darling, and Kelly Schultz, who will be an all-women broadcast team at the NWH All-Star Game in Nashville in February. Okay, Burn It All Down wants to give a special shout-out this week to Maori Davenport, the high school senior in Alabama that we briefly talked about last week at last week at the end of our segment on amateurism. She was deemed ineligible by the Alabama High School Athletic Association in November for depositing an $857.20 check that she was mistakenly sent by USA Basketball after she played for its under-18 team in August. Late last week, a court ruled in her favor, granting an emergency temporary motion while her lawsuit against the AHSAA is pending. And on Friday, y'all, she played in a game scoring 25 points. Go on, my Ori Davenport. Okay, can I get a drum roll, please? I love it. 
Our badass woman of the week is Tembi Hatlana, who won African Confederation's Woman Footballer of the Year and who also took top honors for Goal of the Year at the CAF Awards. Hatlana is a South African forward who plays for the Houston Dash and was the top scorer at the Africa Women Cup of Nations in Ghana last year. There is a beautiful video of her South African teammates singing to her in celebration that we will include in the show notes. Congratulations, Tembi. What's good with y'all? Lindsay? It is snowing in D.C. for the first time uh, all winter, and it's the pretty snow right now where it's just fluffy and it's quiet outside, and it makes me very, very, very happy, and Mo loves it. My dog Mo loves it. Check Instagram, Lynn Sports, for photos. And... (laughs) And also Australian Open starts and you know how excited I am for the first tennis grand slam of the year. Yay. Uh, I am also very excited about the Australian Open. Um, It was kind of a rough week. I had a little bit of trouble with the what's good here. But last night I went to this cafe with my family. It's a really cool place where if you order anything, they have drinks and food. If you order anything, you can sit down and you can play any board game. And they have like hundreds of board games and all these tables. And we picked this incredibly complicated one that I I can't remember the name of now. Um, so we mainly sp- spent the time reading the rule book, but we got started and we're going to go back next week to pick it up. So that was a ton of fun last night. Uh, Brenda, what's good with you? I'm going to go visit my colleague and friend Celso Castillo in Nashville. He's at Vanderbilt. And so I'm going to give a talk there and I'm really looking forward to just checking it out. I've never been to Nashville. Oh my and goodness. Take me I, with you. Right. And his text to me, Celso's text to me, and he's, he's like written this most amazing, brilliant book on Brazilian abolition that I just, I'm, I'm in awe of him anyway. But he texted me and he said, how do you feel about the honky tonk thing? <laughs> like, <laughs> is that something you want to do? <laughs> And I was just like, this is going to be good. So I'm that, sound, that sounds like it's going to be good. Uh, Amira, what's good with you? Yeah. So this week, uh, school went back to session. We go so early. Yeah, um, that is early. It's so early. Don't get me started. <laughs> I should have burned that. Um, anyways, but I'm really excited for both my classes. I have a gender, sexuality, and sports class where I have more student athletes, including graduate student athletes, I'm really excited about. And my civil rights class, which includes um, seven returning students from every class I've ever taught here. And that, to me, is a beautiful thing. So that's, you know, I'm happy about that. I'm happy that I have friends and fellowship here. We had a Ratchademics party this weekend, which was beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to find Black people in Central PA who you really like and can party with. And it's no small feat, believe you me. So I am thrilled about that. And um, I don't want to talk about football. So, you know, send me your good vibes should you care about my football mental health. But other than that, I'm going to curl up on my couch and stay warm. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people, just two, in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. 
Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One more thank you to our patrons. We could not do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burn it all down. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash burn it all down. That's it. Until next week. And I saw-